I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, we're going to hear about an icon of Echoes who passed too soon, and I have a band creating the most soulful of dream pop. Michael Hedges is the 18th icon of Echoes, and we'll hear a profile of this musician who passed nearly a quarter century ago, but he is still influencing anyone who plays fingerstyle guitar. Then we'll hear London Grammar talking about their new album, Californian Soil, the forthcoming Echoes May CD of the Month. It's an album of deep moods and the intoxicating voice of Hannah Reed. Before we get to that, let me tell you about Echoes Online, our streaming subscription music service. You can get all 10 hours of Echoes programs we produce each week, a backlog of some three months plus exclusive online-only streams. And you can do it all on your free Echoes app. If the public station in your area is clueless or you want a more convenient listening time like whenever the hell you want, find out about Echoes online at echoes.org. Michael Hedges is coming up, but first is London Grammar. Beginning with their 2013 debut, London Grammar have released three perfect albums of meticulously crafted, dreamy moods hiding an often dark and tortured undertone. The third album of this trilogy is Californian Soil. London Grammar's Californian Soil is more than a collection of songs. It's an album of ideas, and any album that starts with a cinematically orchestral track like this called Intro is usually a concept album. <laughs> exactly, it yeah. seems like. but it's... It is. It really is a concept album. I'm so happy that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the concept? Feminism. Hannah Reed states that with unflinching certainty. She's the singer and lyricist with the group. Speaking to me on Zoom, she's in what looks like an attic room in her London home. On the other screen is Dot Major, keyboard player and utility musician. They've each just slipped into their 30s. Reed often tackles social and political themes on London Grammar albums, but feminism has risen to the forefront for her. I had had um, definitely a difficult experience of being a woman in the music industry. And it was quite corrosive and got to me over a long period of time. And I think Dan and Dot, you know, noticed that sometimes I got treated differently in certain situations. And I'm kind of dealing with toxic masculinity. There's one story in particular she likes to tell. I basically wasn't being let into our own gig. And it got to the point where there was a crowd of fans behind me convincing the venue owner that I was indeed meant to be playing the show. And I was so nice about it because I was really aware. That's the thing. It's like when you're a woman, you always have to be really, really nice. But it got to a point where I think we were like a few minutes away from going on stage. And the only reason why they let me in is because our tour manager had come looking for me because he was really worried that I'd done a runner, which sometimes people worried about as well. 
And I thought I had been really nice about the whole thing, but then afterwards, the venue owner kind of made a comment to our tour manager, you know, saying that I was a formidable young woman. And there's just something really patronising about that. And, and in my world, you know, we kind of ladies, you know, think it's just a code for the B word, really. She made a t-shirt about this experience that says, formidable young woman, but she doesn't write about these experiences directly in her songs. Instead, she weaves her emotions in, mixing the political with the personal. Yeah, definitely. I think that I always use political landscapes and even the the feminist angle or the feminism that's at the heart of it. it. It is all a metaphor for my own personal experience, emotional experience. And I just hope that then other people can relate to it in their own emotional landscape. I need to learn when this thing called love, when it's a mirror, baby. Can you see all those parts of me? across the world I need to find some kind of peace of mind it's a demon baby when it comes like my oldest friend have you got a friend in the night you say Anna Reed has been the focal point of the band with a voice that can climb to near falsetto highs and deep impassioned lows. I hear a world-weary, all-too-knowing cry in many of her songs. It might be what she listened to as a child. Well, probably when I was like 12, 13, 14, a lot of uh, Motown and all of the big singers that my mum loved. So that was a lot of like Gladys Knight, Whitney Houston, Nina Simone. That might account for the tone of her voice, although she has another side. You were my sun. You were my and then I definitely went through a phase of loving pop music. So I loved like Justin Timberlake and Christina Aguilera, all those huge vocalists I would try and mimic. I think for people our age, it's like that Justin Timberlake album, the first one was, I know for me and my brother as well, who were like for being metal kids, that's the first one of just so unadulterated, incredible pop music with like Timberland producing. And yeah, it's the of, Timberland era, a, yeah. Yeah, for me as a producer as well, that was, that's really so influential, that period, because it kind of brought me into pop music and washed away my young pretentious stupidity basically <laughs> i'm wondering how is it influential because i don't really hear that sound in what you guys are doing really i mean i think so i think like beats wise definitely also that really got me into like scott storch basically because he was involved in so much stuff that timberland was doing as well and i think in terms of writing piano wise that was that's also a huge influence on me but the influence that is more evident is trip-hop and art rock we're listening to a lot of the trip hop stuff and like Moby and Massive Attack and some of the things that actually ended up influencing some of the beginnings of the band. The 
but maybe you can hear some of that pop influence on the more upbeat songs on the album like How Does It Feel and Maybe It's You. That one is no relation to the 60s hit singles by the Shirelles or Smith, written by Burt Bacharach, of which they were unaware. I'm embarrassed. I feel like that's... I probably should. I think we just discovered it. often writes about failed relationships, but on songs like this and a few others, it seems like she may have found love. I have, yeah. <laughs> I have. No one's actually asked, I think no one's dared ask me that in an interview, <laughs> but I'm glad that you did ask me. I I, I think I have. Well, because you often write write about broken love affairs. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there is that on this album. There definitely is, yes, I know. is darkness, <laughs> but there is, you know, there are a couple of love songs on there. Actually, some of the slowest songs. There's a song on the album called All My Love, which is also a nice love song. And that is because I have found love and I'm very, very lucky and happy. Oh, darling, I feel all of your energy as it starts to fade. Love songs seemed to have a dark side. I initially thought all my love was a lament for someone who had died. I mean, that is fascinating. You know, there's something like really deeply, you know, psychoanalytical about my lyrics sometimes. So I'm sure there is a darkness to it. But I mean, that song is about um, being so ill with fibromyalgia. And it actually does feel like you're dying if you have a chronic illness like that. But you can't figure out what's wrong with you. And it's very scary, dark place to be. But in finding, I mean, it's so cheesy. I'm just going to make myself cringe. But in finding love and having the support of that person, I kind of got so much better. And that's what that song is about, is I, I'm kind of ill in the first verse. And then as the song goes on, it's kind of about basically being healed in a way. London Grammar is a popular group signed to a major label, but they conceived and demoed most of the songs on Californian soil in the London attic that belonged to the other member of the band, Dan Rothman. It's called the Narnia Room. Oh, the Narnia Room, yeah. It sounds kind of creepy real when we talk about it. But the thing like, is, it was kind of creepy. It was quite creepy. <laughs> it was, I mean, I know there's nothing creepy about Dan at all. He's like the least creepiest person ever, but... He basically bought this new house and he hadn't told me 
and Dot that he had a studio at the top of the house, that that was the reason why he bought the house. But you had to go into his bedroom and slide the wardrobe, like slide the wardrobe door, which was a mirror. So it was a hidden staircase. And there was this very creepy staircase up to actually what was a very beautiful teeny tiny room and we we wrote a lot of this album in that teeny tiny room I mean when the three of us were in there there wasn't much room from what I remember but it was such a good space to start again in because um the first album was very laptop based and then the second one we just went full-on big studio start to finish everything was written produced performed in big big studios and then it was really special to just disappear into a tiny little space and just be back the way we started really Soil, the title track to London Grammar's new album, and it's one of a couple of tunes that deal with the band's conflicted feelings about America. In fact, the last song is called America. I was very influenced by American culture growing up. I kind of absorbed all of it. So there was, you know, politically there is something maybe going on there as well. It all kind of ties in together, I think, on this album. I, I think it's not about the country at all. I've had nothing but actually really amazing experiences in America. But I think the culture that I absorbed growing up is actually something that maybe I have a more conflicted relationship with. And then going to America and going to LA and not realizing the the poverty that I did see some terrible poverty in America. But it opened my eyes up to the poverty that is actually also in the UK as well. And it kind of, I mean, I could go down a whole path about, you know, how your privilege kind of protects you from maybe noticing that stuff. So it's not a political statement about um, America as a whole and a country, but it's kind of an amalgamation of, yeah, just a lot of the culture that I absorbed growing up, um, especially the pop music and how it impacted me, I think. Between Hannah Reed's voice and lyrics and Dan Rothman and Dot Major's music and arrangements, London Grammar has carved out a terrain of introspective melancholy. Yeah, yeah it is. Maybe our next album should just be really, really happy. I think I'm starting to understand why maybe we don't get offered TV spots that much. Maybe it's just too, too dark. 
London Grammar's latest album is Californian Soil on Ministry of Sound and Columbia Records. I'll have a link for London Grammar's Californian Soil in the posting for this podcast at echoes.org. And while you're there, check out the Echoes CD of the Month Club because Californian Soil will be our May CD of the Month pick. Go to echoes.org, read our reviews, and check out the Echoes CD of the Month Club. That's at echoes.org. And now, We celebrate a lost legend and the 18th icon of Echoes, guitarist Michael Hedges. There are few musicians who've changed the way their instrument is heard. Alto saxophonist Charlie Parker was one, guitarist Jimi Hendrix was another. Michael Hedges is also on that list. He altered the perception of the acoustic guitar for an entire generation and beyond. It was the difference between checkers and three-dimensional chess. He recorded eight albums on the Wyndham Hill label and toured continually. Michael made four appearances on Echoes, playing live in our living room and talking about his music. This feature goes back to 1999, when Hedges was among the ten icons of Echoes for our tenth anniversary. We repeated it again in 2009, when he was the 13th of 20 icons, and now he's the 18th of 30 icons for our 30th anniversary. Kimberly Haas takes us back to the genius of Michael Hedges. Michael Hedges could usually be heard playing solo acoustic guitar, and he recorded on the Wyndham Hill label, so most people thought he was a folk artist. But Hedges thought he was a rocker. Have you ever been to one of my shows? Well, it's loud. It can be very soft, too. That's what I like about the acoustic guitar, the way I've got it uh, picked up, is that I can play real soft, and I can play pretty darn loud. Born in Sacramento, California in 1953 and raised in Oklahoma, Michael Hedges was discovered by Wyndham Hill founder and guitarist William Ackerman in a small Palo Alto club. Ackerman was so overwhelmed that he used a napkin to write out a contract on the spot. Michael Hedges died tragically in November of 1997, but he has left a legacy that every acoustic guitarist must confront. Billy McLaughlin. He really scared me to death because I didn't see him first. I heard him on a live radio broadcast in the Twin Cities and sat there listening with my analytical transcription mind and saying to myself, now, no, this is not quite possible. This is not one person. And when I finally saw a broadcast of that show, boom, the light went on. I said, oh, he's breaking the rules. Raised on rock and roll, schooled at the Peabody Conservatory of Music, and playing a folk instrument, Hedges arrived at some novel techniques. 
They included tapping, hammering, and banging on his specially amplified guitar. It's a style that's been popularized by Eddie Van Halen, but Hedges says he discovered it from Stanley Jordan. It just seemed natural. I guess I was just missing my drummer from my rock band or something, or wanting to be my own ensemble. The sounds needed to be there because the composition needed it. And since I'm a composer, the guitar was there and my hand was there, and if I needed a percussive sound, I'd slap it. If I needed a different kind of attack, I'd hammer it on or pull it off or strum it in a way that would sound different than the others. Michael Hedges' debut CD, Breakfast in the Field, was a New Age hit. But Hedges was always bothered by his association with the genre, so he came up with his own names for his music. I made up violent acoustic and then acoustic thrash and then heavy mental and then savage myth. You know, next year I'll have something else. It's just to keep from getting bored, really. Michael Hedges was a musician who tended towards the mystical side. Any conversation would lead to discussions of Tibetan Buddhism, yoga, and philosophy. His 1990 album, Taproot, was inspired by the writings of Joseph Campbell. It's an autobiography, and I changed and made symbols out of the characters, and symbols, in fact, out of the geographies, uh, and symbols of the events. So uh, when I was studying uh, Joseph Campbell, this, this made sense to me. Make up your own myth and live in it. The album spawned one of his most enduring songs, Ritual Dance. Throughout his career, Michael Hedges yearned to be recognized as a singer-songwriter. He frequently covered rock songs by Prince, Madonna, and Frank Zappa, and released two vocal albums. His posthumous CD, Torched, is dominated by his singing. I've started singing more. My voice is getting better. People are commenting more on my voice, so, uh, you know, I get feedback. And, and uh, if, if I were a guitar player and trying to sing and it wasn't working, then I'd know about it. <laughs> but that's not happening. Yet on his final official album, Oracle, his songs were rejected by Wyndham Hill. I had five instrumentals and five vocals, and Wyndham Hill listened to the instrumentals and the vocals, and they said, we love the instrumentals, the vocals, we could pass on them. Have you got some more instrumentals? And I said, sure. Time to talk, it's time I speak. The switch is on and the light is green. Michael Hedges probably didn't have any intimation of his death. But through his spiritual searches, he'd contemplated it on pieces like Ignition. I had read the Tibetan book of living and dying by a Buddhist uh, named Sogyal Rinpoche. And Sogyal Rinpoche says that in the Buddhist uh, faith, when you die, you see this thing happening called ground luminosity. And I thought, yeah, you burn up and you die and, and you see this, this new glow happening. And I thought, well, you know, how can I put this into music? So I thought, ignition, you know, that's, you ignite, you, you go to ashes. Mm -hmm. 
November of 1997, Michael Hedges was killed in a car crash. Michael Hedges' career burnt a path through modern instrumental music. Players like Rob Eberhard Young, Richard Leo Johnson, and Billy McLaughlin acknowledge his impact. Guitarist Alex Degrassi. Well, Michael was not only a, a great innovator and player on steel string guitar, but he was probably the most dynamic performer in that genre. I mean, I think he took it to a new place. Kimberly Haas bringing us Michael Hedges. He's an artist whose impact is truly lasting well beyond his passing as guitarists continue to be inspired by his sound. Every time a guitarist taps his instrument, those in the know quickly think to themselves, there's Michael Hedges. Michael Hedges is number 18 of 30 Icons of Echoes. I've got a list online of five essential Michael Hedges albums. It wasn't too hard since Michael only put out eight proper recordings. It's on our website, and I'll have a link in the posting for this podcast. You can also see the complete list of the 30 icons of Echoes at echoes.org, and you can dig back in the podcast where we've done profiles like this on most of the first 18 icons. Next week on the Echoes podcast, the 19th icon, Kraftwerk, and the British psychedelic electronic duo, Spongle. Subscribe to the Echoes podcast so you don't miss any of these gems. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio, somewhere in the country, or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want. <laughs>